Okay, so we will be jumping back into the book of Acts this morning. So are you enjoying this study we're doing in the book of Acts? I hope you are because uh, I certainly am. Uh, what we're looking at right now, we, uh, we covered much of chapter 8 last week. We're going to be, or the first part of chapter 9 last week, and we're jumping into verse 32 through 43 this morning. Uh, just remember the beginning part of Acts chapter 9 dealt with the conversion in the early ministry of the Apostle Paul. Uh, and that, that Paul will, will eventually, uh, in chapter 13, actually become the focal point of the rest of the book of Acts will be pretty much about the ministry of the Apostle Paul. But for now we're studying the early ministry of the Apostle uh, Peter. But before we do that, I mean, as we're doing that, we're going to be looking at the ministry of Peter. Okay, so we are going to be reading this morning from chapter 9, uh, verses 32 through the end of the chapter. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydda, there he found a uh, man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he arose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him. They turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, who, which uh, translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, heard, uh, hearing that Peter was there, sent, to, uh, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them, and when we arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the windows stood beside, widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics. Uh, and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put on them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave uh, her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, uh, a tanner. Just remember Jesus' instructions as he sent out the twelve was to go to the lost sheep of Israel and proclaim to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, and guess what? Raise the dead. Cleanse lepers, cast out demons. So, we, so what we see here with Peter is he's doing what Jesus had commissioned him to do. He's going forth with a gospel from Jerusalem. Remember the Great Commission? You know, how they had kind of sequestered themselves in Jerusalem early on, immediately after the resurrection. But now what we're seeing is the apostles leaving Jerusalem in, in their efforts to, to fulfill that Great Commission that Jesus had given to them. 
And so now we find Peter first in Joppa, and now he's going to Lydda. In Lydda, Peter encountered a man named Aeneas. He'd been bedridden for eight years because he was paralyzed. Not for his whole lifetime, but for a lengthy period of time. Just for information, Aeneas is a name that's derived from Greek, which simply means praise. Translated... into no I'm jumping ahead forget I said anything <laughs> one of the things I want to point I want to bring this morning is this is quite likely Aeneas had long ago given up any hope of ever walking again he was bedridden he knew it he really had no hope that the, his situation his circumstances were ever going to change And Peter comes to him and he simply says, Jesus Christ heals you. Arise. Make up your bed. And he does. Peter knows very well that he himself has no power to heal anyone. That if there is healing done, it is Jesus working in and through him. It's not because he's been given this, some inherent power or ability to do it. Peter is not interested at all in taking credit for something only God can do. Unfortunately, it's not unusual for people to take credit when other people are converted to the Christian faith. I've heard people brag at times about how many souls that they've saved for Christ. I don't know if you've ever heard anyone say anything like that before, but I actually have heard that with my own ears, people bragging in a sense about how many people they have saved in essence. But notice here, Peter was not interested at all in taking credit for something that he knew he couldn't do. That, that the healing that took place here was healing that Jesus himself did. The Lord does the healing. The Lord does the saving. And it's he who deserves all the credit. Always, every time. Jesus has spiritually healed you, period. You have not in any way spiritually healed yourself. Who deserves the credit? He does. All of it.
Peter very clearly understood that simple principle, and every Christian should. It's very clearly taught in the Bible. There is no way to escape it. God saves people. People do not save themselves. And I would challenge us with the idea this morning that God's acts of healing are rarely, if ever, designed for the sole benefit of the one person. It's also for the benefit of those who are witnesses to it. Whether they be immediate witnesses or maybe they, they're distant witnesses like you and I are in essence this morning. There's a sense in which you and I, this morning, can appreciate the fact that we have benefited 2,000 years later from what God did in this man's life through the Apostle Peter. That we would all be challenged this morning. That we would also all be blessed and strengthened this morning. Sharon was a place that was close to Lida. And evidently, the miraculous healing that's taken place there, the news of it begins to spread. And there were many people affected by this miraculous healing that took place with Dorcas. One of the points that we need to take consideration of at this point is this, is the gospel spreading, just like Jesus wanted it to, just like Jesus said that it was going to. It's going all over the place. Maybe still it's just a little, little flame, but, if, but soon it's going to burst into a blazing fire that is going to spread to the, the, the known world. Now we have Joppa, seaport on the Mediterranean coast, about 40 miles northwest of Jerusalem. The people there begin to hear the news of the gospel. Disciples are made. One by the name of Tabitha, or sometimes called Dorcas. Now can you imagine being named Dorcas? Sounds a whole lot like dork. <laughs> and I'm sure probably that, that it is rooted sometime etymologically here. <laughs> but a woman who was a disciple, very much noted for her good works and acts of charity, and she suddenly became ill and died. And the disciples there heard that Peter was close by in Lydda. And so they sent to have Peter come, and he does. 
And when he gets there, he walks into the room and the body is surrounded by widows and, uh, and others who praise Dorcas for her kindnesses toward them. Now, if you're familiar with the Bible, you know that there's several examples uh, in particular in the Gospels uh, in regard to Jesus raising dead people back to life. There's the daughter of Jairus, the synagogue official. The widow's son in name, Lazarus, probably the one that's known most of all of Jesus resurrecting people. And, and, and quite likely, there probably were a lot more. They're just not recorded in Scripture. Just remember, the Gospels only give us little snapshots of the life and ministry of Jesus and encompassed far more, a whole lot more, than you and I have any clue of. We're also told in the book of Matthew that at the time of Jesus' resurrection, there were a lot of dead people in Jerusalem that, was all, that were also raised from the dead who came out of the tombs. If you're familiar with the Bible, you know there also are a number of examples of resurrections that took place in the Old Testament. The son of the widow in Zarephath, the Shunammite's son, the dead man's body when it was thrown into the, uh, the tomb of Elisha. The resurrection, the idea of resurrection was not something that was foreign to these people. They were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. They knew that resurrection was a possibility. But they also understood this, that when it happened, it was something God did. Paul himself would later raise Eutychus. He was a young man who was sitting in a window listening to him preach as he ended his third, near, near the end of his third missionary journey and the, the young man fell asleep and fell to the ground and was dead. He was raised from the dead. But even with all of these examples, if you consider all the people that have lived through history, you have to say that resurrections, even though they have taken place, they have been relatively rare occurrences. That the vast majority of time when people have died, they were dead and they stayed dead. But even today, the miraculous still continues to happen. You don't hear all that much about it sometimes, but let me just give you an example of what I'm talking about. March 20th, 2015, there was a 22-month-old infant that fell into the ice, an icy tributary of Buffalo Creek, Pennsylvania, in Pennsylvania, submersed in 34-degree water for 30 minutes. The body arrived at the hospital with no pulse, and it hadn't had any pulse for a lengthy period of time, and in a body temperature of 77 degrees Fahrenheit. Suddenly, 
alive again. And suffered no neurological damage at all. That, my friends, is a bona fide miracle that happened very recently. And it's not the only one. We understand that all of these are just a prelude to the resurrection that will take place at the second coming of Christ. Every person who has ever lived and died in the history of the world will undergo resurrection. Unless you happen to be one of those people who is already living when Jesus comes back. Other than that, every person that has ever lived in all of history will not only hear about resurrection, they will experience their own resurrection. How many people do you think are going to doubt it after that? I don't imagine too many. Dorcas comes back to life. And the people around her rejoiced. Can you imagine how much they were strengthened? How, how much their faith grew, their belief in Jesus grew that very day. But we're not told what she thought about it. You see, she had to leave Jesus to come back into this world. What do you think your perspective might have been? Being ripped out of heaven and sent back into this place? <laughs> Need to be praying for Flora. She's grieving very deeply. Her and Charlie were married for a very long time. Went through a lot in life together. Thankfully, she has a loving, kind son that we can have every assurance will take care of her. What she's going to do for certain, I don't know if she's going to stay here or move somewhere else. One of the problems we all know is understand that she doesn't drive, so it really, you know, she was very dependent upon Charlie to do that. But I would imagine that there's a part of Flora this morning, if you ask her this question, do you want Charlie back? If you could have Charlie back, would you want him to come back? And I would imagine there's a big part of her that would say, yes, 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 I would do anything to make that happen. Would Charlie come back if he was given the opportunity to do it, knowing what he knows now? We don't know. But we do know this, that Charlie's perspective on everything has changed unbelievably at this point. That he understands what truly is really, really, really important. 
He understands what is the very most important. And at the same time, he knows this, that on the day that Flora, Flora's body dies, she will come to Jesus and also to him. Funerals are very often very emotional experiences. We've all been there, and I doubt there's anybody in this room that has not shed tears at funerals. Parting from loved ones is not easy, ever. But it's a whole lot easier when you have every assurance that your loved one is in heaven with Jesus. Funerals are about grief and about sadness for ourselves, but never sadness for those we know who have died in Christ. There's a sense in which funerals for Christians ought to be a time of rejoicing. Can you imagine what her life looked out after all, like after this? I mean, she was an encourager before. What do you think she did afterward? I'd imagine she could hardly get a sentence of it out of her mouth that didn't have something to do with Jesus. I'd imagine there was a part of her that longed to go back to where she'd been jerked from. That she had a fruitful life before this? How fruitful do you think her life was after this? How many people are in heaven now because of the testimony of the resurrected Dorcas? See, ultimately, Jesus asked only one thing of Peter and the rest of the apostles and, and the rest of those who were coming to faith, and that is faithfulness on their own part. Faithfulness to him and faithfulness to their calling and to that great commission. Have you ever wondered that when you stand before Jesus, whether Jesus will find you as faithful. Let's just be honest this morning. For most of us, our lives today are still far more worldly than they ought to be. We don't have our eyes on heaven to the degree that we ought to. There's some sense in which our life may not look a whole lot different than the lives of a lot of people who are not even believing.
Peter didn't leave Joppa immediately. He stayed there for a reason. And we know what the reason was. It's not just because he decided he liked it there. It's not because he just wanted to maybe take a little hiatus and a vacation or something like that. He stayed there because it was God's intention for him to go there, and it's now God's intention for him to stay. God has work for Peter to do in Joppa, just like he did in Lydda. We're not really given the details of much of it, but he does, he ministers there. Not only in the raising of Dorcas, but in other ways to other people. That Peter will not leave until the Holy Spirit leads him to go. We just had Pastor's Appreciation Sunday. and Lauren, I really do appreciate you guys. Far more than you know. For the most part, it's been very easy to be your pastor, believe it or not. Not entirely. <laughs> most of the time. And, you know, and, and, you know I, you've heard me say this before, but the greatest privilege I've ever known is to be Lori's husband, and the second one is to be your pastor. And I mean that. I've mean that all along, and hopefully I'll still mean it by the time I leave here. <laughs> uh, but we are in a transition now, and I know that some of you kind of understand that. We're transitioning from my being the minister here to, to Mike taking my place. And that means he's going to be doing more and more things, and I'm going to be doing less and less things. And, uh, and he, what I want to see is this. Is, let me just tell you this. Some people might think well, Keith might get jealous of this. I'm, I'm not. What I want, I want for... For, for Mike and for Barbara to experience the love of this congregation in the same degree, in the same manner that Lori and I have for all of these years. I want ministry to be a challenge for them, and it is going to be a challenge in all kinds of ways, but at the same time, my hope and my prayer is that they are going to experience blessings in, in being in this special place that they would not know apart from it. But notice here that Peter stays with a tanner. Now, we don't know much about tanners other than they make leather, right? You understand what tanners do? That's that they make leather. But in the ancient Jewish culture, because they worked with dead animals, they were considered to be unclean. Even though people use their leather all the time. I'm sure all their sandals were made out of leather and this, you know, this, that, and the other. So they used the product, but they frowned upon the profession. So why did Peter stay here? I would imagine to send out a signal, at least to some degree, for those prejudiced people. Now, actually, there was a law that said that tanners had to live at least 50 cubits outside of a city. They could not live in town. Strangely, Jesus 
said many things about himself. He gave himself many titles, and one of those is, I am the good shepherd. You need to understand that shepherds were frowned upon too because they worked with dirty, nasty animals that were used for sacrifices. Think about Peter. He was a fisherman. Do you think that being a fisherman was a highly prized profession in those days? Is it today? Probably not much, and I don't imagine it was a whole lot better in those days. I would imagine that Peter, being a fisherman, was probably very comfortable saying with Simon, who was the tanner, because they had some, some experiences they could share with one another that they, they had from the years that had passed. About how people had treated them, maybe, and that sort of thing. So where are you? What are you doing? Really? And I'm not saying, are you in here today? I know you're here today. I see you. (laughs) But I'm talking about where is your life right now? Can't we say that we're living our lives for Christ? Or is there a much greater sense in which we're really living our lives more for me? Myself. Let me just remind us this morning that being a Christian is unbelievably blessed. But there's another thing that we need to think about on occasion, and one of that, those is that, Christ, that being a Christian is also very demanding. Jesus will not settle for just a little bitty part of you. He has every right to all of you. And he will settle for nothing less. And that is the direction that he's he's, he's drawing us in. I hope that everybody here, I hope everybody in this room with real sense can can say this and understanding and belief of it that I'm not the same person today that I was last year. That I'm not the same person I was when I first came to faith in Jesus Christ. That there is a sense in which I have a greater passion for holiness. There's a sense in which I have a much greater and, and, and higher love for Jesus than I used to. That I'm not just seeking a place where I'm comfortable that I am willing to go wherever Jesus will lead me to go even to those very difficult places. Just like Peter, everyone in this room has a mission field. Now, I don't imagine anybody's as near as big as Peter's was. I mean, after all, Peter continues to minister to you and I today. See the Bible. 
I mean, how many disciples have, has Peter played a role in making? You, you know, millions, certainly, to this point. Not likely that anyone in this room is going to do that. But at the same time, that great commission that he gave to the apostles has been passed on to us to make disciples of all the nations. And sometimes that means going. It, I, let me say in a sense, it always means going. Sometimes it means going a long distance, and other times it means only walking a few feet to your neighbor's door. I think probably this will be true. I think that for the vast majority of believers that they will be amazed at a lot of things that take place in heaven or in the new earth. We're here when Jesus comes back. And that is they're going to be people who talk about how you witness to them in a way that it helped to bring them to Christ initially and to cause them to grow in their faith, and you, in fact, are probably absolutely oblivious to it. People are watching you. People are listening to you. They see what you do. They hear what you say. And if Christ is really embedded deeply in your heart, he will come forth in what you say, in what you do. And people will long to have it. They will want it. They will desire it. So make the most of every opportunity. And you, we all have opportunities. You know, we just do. You know, most of us, most of you guys know that Lori and I bought property up in, in Levy County a couple of years ago. It was an investment, but also with the idea that we may eventually build a house up there and move up there, and there's nothing going to happen in the very near future or, or anything like that. But I spent the last couple of years on my days off. I bought a little John Deere tractor with a backhoe on it, and I'm going up there, and I'm cleaning off this heavily wooded four acres. You know, and I love doing it because I've always loved to be outside. I love working hard. Some people, and I, and I know, I know who gave me the hernia. I know it. You don't have to tell me. And I know what I should be doing now and what I should not be doing. You don't have to tell me that either. But I will tell you this, that for Key State to sit in a chair for the rest of his life and do almost nothing would kill me. And I'm not going there. So you can advise me all you want to. And whatever, but I'm going to do what I want to do. So don't waste your breath. But let me tell you, I love going up there for a lot of reasons. It's because he's there in the quiet. You know, in a sense, it's a spiritual retreat for me when I go there and I work hard all day. I'm constantly praying. I'm constantly thinking about him. And I'm accomplishing something else in the process. I hope you have 
something like that. Your quiet place. Where you can go regularly and be with God. But let me just say this. Quiet places are important, but you can't stay there all the time. You have to take what you gain in those quiet times and apply it to your life in a way that other brothers and sisters are encouraged and strengthened by it. And at the same time, those around you who do not know Jesus are gently encouraged to consider him. We need that. We all need that. We need to be about our Father's business. In some aspect, in just about pretty much anything and everything that we do. God needs to be part of the picture. We need to get over this idea that my life is my own to do whatever I want to do with. It just flat isn't. You belong to him. You are his very precious and greatly loved possession. He bought you. How can we possibly understand that and have the gall to tell him no? That we do. Just to measure the sin that's still within us. That great commission still applies to the world today. It still applies to you and me. And just like Jesus said, I must be about my father's business, there's a big part of our life that we need to be able to say, I am about my father's business. All of us. Well, we will be moving on in to Acts chapter 10 next week.